Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple and the host of the Project Purple Podcast. We have another interview for you coming up with two very special guests after a few quick updates. The Project Purple Podcast has surpassed over 100,000 downloads. So I just want to thank, first of all, all the guests for allowing us to share their journeys here at the Project Purple Podcast and to all the listeners out there for listening. When we had this idea to start this podcast, I probably never envisioned that we would get to 100,000 ever in our existence. And uh, it's really special to have hit that benchmark. So thank you to everyone for listening, for sharing, for tuning in week after week, and especially for our guests to coming on and allowing us to share their journeys. 2023 was a record year for us, and we are already a quarter into 2024 and we're on pace to have another record year, which is just truly amazing and truly best blessed um, in terms of us here at Project Purple. So for everyone who supported us in 2023, which was our best year ever in terms of fundraising, I just want to thank everyone who supported, donated, or participated in a Project Purple event. Many of our 2024 teams um, have launched. Um, a lot of them are sold out, unfortunately, but we have many new races that we are adding. So uh, super excited that in 2024, we are back in the Boston Marathon as an official charity partner. This now makes us the official charity partner of the five largest world marathons. So be on the lookout for many more races to be launching very soon, in particular, the New York City Marathon, which will be launching here uh, probably as we record this episode and um, right before it airs. Um, We also have our virtual race series. Our Purple Patties is here in March. We also have uh, our series launching uh, with our second event in June, and then our Turkey uh, event in November. For those local to the Connecticut area, we are excited for our Charity Golf Classic on Monday, June 3rd at Shorehaven Country Club in Norwalk, Connecticut. To learn more about all these great events, visit our website at projectpurple.org and make sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date on all things Project Purple. Without further ado, let's meet our special guest coming to us all the way, I say all the way, it's far enough, from Northern California, Matt and Jules Tucker. Welcome to the Project Purple podcast. Thanks for having us, Dina. Thanks, Dina. So I know we were playing kind of uh, catch up here. It was the first time we've met before we hit record. I say this often. I always have like, we always have like these 10 minute buffers, but I try to like get to meet people before we hit record and we were catching up. Um, So as I said before, you know, the first segment of our podcast is really the guest opportunity to kind of share their journey with pancreatic cancer. We do bring on couples quite a bit. We love kind of seeing both perspectives not only from uh, the patient themselves, but then the caregiver's perspective. So this is, I'm excited that we have two two guests here today on the podcast, which is a little bit different because we usually only have one. But with that, I'm going to hand the microphone all over to you guys to kind of share your journey, your experience with pancreatic cancer. With that, the microphone is yours, Matt and Jules. All right. Thank you. Um, just to, uh, to uh, go off of what, have you, what you said, I really wanted Matt to come on because it's I think the caregiver doesn't always get a voice and there's definitely um, a different perspective than what the patient goes through. Um, so I'm glad that, you know, Matt was able to join us. Um, I would say my journey might've started right out of high school. Um, the first episode that I had with um, 
that's like 91 I, that I had with uh, stomach pain was the year after I graduated high school. So I guess 1990, actually. So I'm 52. Um, I had a night where I remember calling my mom. She was out and I was like on the floor and I just with this horrible stomach pain. And um, she took me to the ER and they did imaging, but they couldn't find anything. And it was like, oh, you're, you know, you're being overreactive. Yeah, you're be, you know, being a hypochondriac. I'm like, okay, fine. And And I kept that with me. And as years progress, I kept having like gastro issues where I'd have this extreme pain and I, and I'd go to the doctor and they say it's acid reflux. And so I just started doubting myself. And I also started thinking that I was a hypochondriac. Um, Fast forward to COVID when we were in lockdown, I had, that's when things really started to hit. I had um, a bad pain episode that lasted for like a week and we went to urgent care and they were triaging outside. And again, the doctor was like, it, this it's just acid reflux. Just go home. You'll be fine. And just kind of, you know, uh, sent us home. And then what was it like? 2022? 2022. After COVID. Yes. Mm-hmm. So um, it was at the beginning of the school year, uh, fall 2022. I'd had two rounds of COVID six weeks apart and um, symptoms didn't go away. And so everyone, including uh, my husband and I, just assumed I had long haul COVID. Um, by September, I was kind of, August, by September, I was in bed for most of the time with my husband caring for me because I was having this, um, extreme itching all over my body and we couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, we finally went to see the doctor, I think around October, November, and we finally got in to be able to see a doctor and, um, she thought it was long haul COVID and, recommended we see specialists for long haul COVID. We couldn't get in to see specialists until the new year. And um, so we just kind of were suffering through it. Um, And then it was what, um, December, December 9th, we were, were, I went to an ophthalmologist and my eyesight had also been impacted. Um, And then uh, as we're driving home, a friend of ours who's an ER doctor called and he was like, you know what, I've been thinking about what you're going through. Um, and I, I really highly suggest you go to an ER and just get a full panel of labs done. So he's like, just come go to the, go to my ER and, uh, we'll make sure you get, uh, tested. So we went in and his colleague treated me and he ran labs and Matt and I are like, you know, I'm in a good health space at that point. And Matt and I are kind of joking and laughing. We're, we, we have a snarky sense of humor. So there's a lot of laughter. And so we're sitting there just joking and laughing, um, they take me to imaging for do an ultrasound. And I think in hindsight, if we'd paid attention to the demeanor of the ultrasound tech, we would have known right away that there was something drastically wrong. So the first tech comes in, does the imaging, then she calls a supervisor. And then that supervisor calls another supervisor. Um, And at that point, like they're not telling us anything. Um, we've been gone all day. We have four kids and it's time for pickups and things like that. So I said, you know what, Matt, I'm fine. Go home, take care of the kids um, and just come back and get me at a later date. And so after he left, um, it's like about an hour later, um, my doctor walks in and you can tell by the look on his face that something's wrong, but it's still not clicking. So I, I probably don't want to know that something's wrong. And he's asked if my husband is around and I said, no. And he said, um, you have pancreatic cancer stage three. And 
from that point on, it was this whirlwind. Um, I had to cold call my husband and tell him that they were admitting me um, and that I had stage three cancer. He came racing back and they admitted me on a Friday. I think on a Saturday, I had um, a, stent. a stent put in because the itching was due to my bill of Reuben backing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on Sunday, they put in my port. Um, I was in there for a, in the hospital for a week. They sent me home and it was what, less than 24 hours. It was that night. That night. Sepsis. I, sepsis developed. I had this extreme pain, the fever developed, and we had to call the ambulance. And they raced me code blue to the hospital and I was admitted to the ICU for 48 hours. Um, they were able to get the sepsis treated. And then I was in the hospital again for probably another week and I was released on Christmas Eve. Um it was hard for the kids, especially because I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to them. And I had to tell them, um, tell them via FaceTime that I wasn't coming home and that I had cancer. Um, our oldest is now 17, a junior in high school. Um, his life has been impacted by cancer. We didn't realize this until he wrote a paper for school, but his life had been impacted by cancer because uh, one of our neighbors, the husband, when we moved in, was like almost like their grandfather. You know, he had a great relationship. My son was about four when we moved in. And this gentleman, Bob, really, you know, had an impact on my son. And Bob passed away from cancer. And then shortly afterwards, like our two dogs passed away from cancer. And our son just, just took that all in. And we didn't realize it. So when I told the family, the kids, that I had cancer, you could see by the look on my oldest son's face that he understood the magnitude of what we were going through and going to um, face. Um, And you could see in all the kids that you could see the fear um, on their faces. I don't think our youngest who is now 11 fully understood, which in some ways I'm really grateful for. Um, But it was really hard on the kids and they all handled it very differently. And I think that for us, I decided early on that how I handled my diagnosis and treatment would really impact how the kids impact, you know, handled um, my illness. So we tend to be pretty positive. We Mm -hmm. have a snarky sense of humor. Um, We have, um, I've gone through a lot of hard things in my life and what gets you through is hope. Um, And so we just focused on the laughter and the family and hope. And that's, what's gotten us through. Um, by January, my birthday, I turned 51 in January of 2023. And I think the day before or the day of my birthday, we started chemo and it was 12 rounds of Fulfirinox um, every two weeks. Um, and we actually managed to get through all 12 rounds. And that concluded with a bit of a break. Um, I think about a month break to, to regain strength. And then um, August 15th, uh, 2023, this school year, the first day of school for my kids, um, I was admitted to the hospital to have the Whipple done um, at UCSF. And I've got to say, UCSF has been phenomenal. They're upbeat, they're, um, they're communicative, they, you know, they schedule things, they're just on top of everything. Um, and the time in the hospital, while it was really hard, my, my healing was really challenging. Um, the nurses and the doctors were just phenomenal. 
Um, I would highly recommend them if anyone's going through it on the, you know, the West Coast. Um, the Whipple, I was told by my surgeon, he normally does two in a day. Um, he did just mine that day and he had a transplant specialist in. Um, what was My tumor was wrapped around my portal vein. And so the chemo was to shrink the tumor away from the portal vein. And um, then they took out that section of the part, portal vein. Um, and then like all people with Whipple, like just kind of scrambled everything else up. <laughs> um, and then, um, I was in the hospital for 17 days because um, my stomach just wouldn't wake up. So we had like three NG tubes um, and I ended up leaving the hospital after 17 days with um, a pick line uh, for nourishment. And that lasted for about what, two weeks and a half. Yeah. Um, it was definitely a really challenging time. Um, because of the fear of addiction to opiates, um, UCSF is very careful with pain management. So there was a lot of nights of like screaming in pain until we figured out how to manage my pain. Um, and then once we got that, it was, um, it was much better to say the least. Um, but the recovery from it, like, uh, I'm the recovery from it's, I look good for having gone through a Whipple just in August and I'm doing really well, but there's, and there's some things are still challenged. I still struggle with pain uh, here and there. And, um, we just discovered last week why I still struggle with exhaustion. Um, my bone marrow is still hand. Uh, healing from chemo. I have some leftover symptoms from chemo, like I neuropathy in my hands and feet, yeah. which is challenging. I'm an artist, so I didn't do any art while I was you know, sick. Um, and the chemo brain is truly a thing. Um, that it's that on top of my ADHD it made <laughs> it made the year really uh, challenging. There's a lot of repeated conversations on my side. Um, but like I said, my family has a snarky sense of humor, so a lot of squirrel jokes flying around. Um, and honestly, it's humor is what got my kids through it. We, I started making jokes early on about um, like there's this invisible cancer card that you throw out. And in my mind, it looks like a Uno card. And every once in a while, you just like play it, slam it on the table. Oh, yeah, well, I've got cancer just as a joke. And so um, my kids picked up on that. And so they started joking around that in the house. So it was like, OK, we're in a good space if they can joke about this. Um, a lot of jokes about, you know, other kids stealing food from a cancer patient, um, things like that. <laughs> um, but it made the situation more palatable and just more bearable for the kids, which is what we really wanted. Um, it's not a journey we thought we'd take or we'd want to take, um, but we're doing it and we're getting through it. Um, we've had a huge outpouring of support from our community, which we weren't expecting and absolutely blew us away and was completely heartwarming. Like they took our kids, you know, picked up our kids, dropped off our kids, you know, um, entertained our kids at times. Um, help, Matt was able, Matt's work was very supportive. He took last year off and was at every one of my appointments. And he's like, my goal is to make sure as best we can with this disease to get you through it. And so as we do all things, we do all things as a team. And that's what we did. Did you have to do chemo post uh, Whipple? No, um, my surgeon, sorry, my oncologist said that she didn't see any difference between 
having chemo all done before or some before and some after. So they just did 12 rounds um, upfront and then gave us a month to recover. But the chemo was really hard. I went from, you know, being a functioning, you know, human being to having to use a walker um, by the end. Um, I really struggled with balance and being able to stay upright. Um, it was it was a really hard process. So I, I want to ask about, and, and thank you for sharing that, Jules. I got so many questions here, and I want to try to start. Let's do this. Let's go back to the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And I know hindsight, I always say, is twenty twenty here. So in high school, you have the stomach pain, and then COVID comes, and you have this pain that lasted a week. And then you have these like long COVID symptoms that just don't go away. Now, the extreme itching, we know which is very strange, but also is a symptom, right? That is a sign and symptom if you just have like these rashes, itching. And as you said, that you know, that you had that stent and that's really the the stenting, the blockage, I should say, typically of the bile duct is what leads to jaundice and also this extreme itching, right? Exactly. Yeah, so by putting that stent in, that gets relieved. And that's one of, I I guess I would say is like this visual sign for a lot of people, but like, Frankly, itching can just be like, hey, you you change your detergent, right? Or you have an allergic reaction to something that you eat that you don't normally eat or, you know, whatever the case may be, like that you ingested and, you know, it just has this reaction to. But the question here, and you gave me your age. So you're 51, uh, 52 now because you just had a birthday. Congratulations. Happy birthday. Um. From 19 or 18 to, let's say, this was in 40, you were 49 at the time, or 50, excuse me. Could you ever look back and be like, you know, I had that, you know, I was, you know, there was like that two-week time where I had this like nasty pain in my back or the side stitch or, you know, I was, I, I had, I know a lot of times people sometimes present with like GI issues, like this nasty GI bug that just never went away. And we happened to be on vacation and we thought we drank or ate something or, you know, went out to dinner and thought it was food poisoning, but it just didn't go away for that long period of time. Can you look back at anything? Again, I know it's easy hindsight 2020 to say like, oh, maybe this was a sign or maybe this was a symptom that we just kind of, you know, again, because they're so vague. Completely. Um, Because that's all I knew from my adult life, I just lived with the gastric pain. And it was, it would just show up randomly and periodically. And sometimes it would last like a week or two. And and sometimes um, it would just be there for a day or so. But if I look back, I could see that like my diet I started to change my diet because I based on like, the gastric pain. Based on the gastric pain, yeah. Um, so, so when I, you say gastric pain, this is like having like bloating or having like gas or just having like a deep internal pain. I just want to try to like visualize well, this or like define so this for the audience. Started to develop definitely more gas as the years went on, um, but also, but basically, it was extreme pain. It was like this weird burning pain. Um, and I also had back pains. Um, I'd had a, a period in high school, I want to say my junior year, where one summer I just woke up and I had this extreme back pain and they went to check it out and there was nothing there. But I was like flat on my back for a week. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's tied to the, the uh, pancreatic cancer, I don't know, but it's 
I, I wouldn't be surprised, but I've had lived with this pain all my life and I've gone to doctors about it. So I thought like I was being in, you know, like a hypochondriac and you really start to question and doubt yourself. Um, I come from a family where there was a lot of focus placed on my health as a kid because I had asthma growing up mm. and I felt like I was in a bubble growing up. So I probably went too far the other way to say, Hey, everything's fine. I'm just overreacting kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and let's be honest, like we have had four kids. So with all the pregnancies, there's, there's imaging, right? It's not like right. there was, but the takeaway from this is that imaging doesn't go deep enough. Um, you yeah. really specialized imaging to get a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, as well as um, advocate to say, hey, I need a full panel of blood labs to know what's really going on. And that's what I didn't ask for. Because again, like, I'm below the average age for, you know, having pancreatic cancer. So it's not on anyone's radar that I have cancer. In fact, like our doctor friend who suggested we go to the ER, it wasn't on his radar. It's like, uh, everyone was taken by surprise. So I mean, yeah, definitely looking back, there's definitely like a pattern where I'm like, oh, this all makes sense now. My life makes sense. Yeah. And the big one was, Dino, is that I, I st- as time went on, especially mm-hmm. as a young parent, I started um, struggling with fatigue. And, yeah. you know, Matt traveled a lot for work. So I was solo parent with four kids um, and they're close in age. So, you know, my reaction was, I'm over, you know, I'm stressed, I'm overworked, I'm just trying to manage all this stuff. But it really impacted um, even my parenting. Like, I was just so tired all the time. I couldn't understand, like, how um, other families or mothers could get through the day where, like, by noon, I just, like, I was like, God, I got to take a nap. Uh, I am so, like, bone-aching exhausted. Um, well, four, four kids in that age band, I, I can't imagine it was... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I have two boys 18 months apart. They're 18 and 19 now, but like, I can't imagine having two more in that type. I mean, you got four kids in six years, so that's a lot. We have uh, a spread of 35 months, no twins. And then we waited three years. God bless so, yeah. you both. Um, Matt, this question's for you. So and the hindsight question is not to, and I hope it doesn't come across this way either. Like it's not to beat up. I, I just, it's kind of fascinating. I, and I think this is important for the audience, right? Like, cause people, to your point, Jules, like you, like everyone looks at it like, oh, I have kids, right? Um, they don't think about like cancer, right? Like you're in your forties or even going back, like you're 18 years old. You don't think of cancer, right? There's this big, there's a big uh, stigma in the United States and even in the world, like, you know, there's been a push and, and regardless of what's happening now, but even going back the last five years, people between 18 and 45, because they think fatigue is just life. It's like, oh, I party too hard. I have kids. I've got work. I've got stress. I've got all these things. I'm not eating right. Right. But a lot of times those can be early onset to like something really, you know, underneath the hood, as I like to say. You know, something's happening there that we just don't know physiologically. You know, it's not something that we can touch and feel unless it's like a breast cancer or one of the cancers that actually presents itself on the exterior of, of, you know, an organ or so that we can touch and feel and know. Matt, to you, like when you look back, I mean, what were some of the things that kind of you saw, not necessarily, um, you know, from your time, but like 
from the very beginning, but like in this short range where, you know, Jules really started to be like, I guess we would say asymptomatic. Did you, do you think you noticed the changes before her or, you know, maybe around the same time as her, you know, just from the caregiver perspective? If I think about the, the symptoms that ended up presenting as cancerous, right. Um, and she's talked about this. She had an elevated bilirubin level um, because of a blocked bile duct, as you said, which led yeah. to so if I think about that, the challenge is that all that was kicked off with COVID, right? I mean, we had two bats of COVID six weeks apart. So our house was like with six people, like this weird <laughs> mixture of quarantine and safe zones to keep everyone alive. Like it was, it was a mess, right? And coming out of that, like everyone felt kind of crappy, right? <laughs> like it took yeah. a while to recover. So her being sick in that period didn't ring, it wasn't any alarm bells around that. And it wasn't until she was not getting better when other people had, and her symptoms presented like long COVID, right? And this is the challenge. I mean, she talked about, you know, having, you know, a pain and itching in the hands, neuropathy. Those are some common side effects, or I should say effects of long COVID. So we were in touch with doctor friends, with specialists, really headed down a path of saying, yes, there's something wrong, but we think we know what it is. And we think we can find the right specialists that help us get there. The joke here for me is if I go like, you know, hindsight's 2020 is she had a number of blood tests through this called three month period before she was actually diagnosed. Bilirubin was not measured for in any of those. It's just not part of the panel, right? They're not thinking yeah. about it. But the number is supposed to be like, you know, one and hers was like nine. And we just, Which is no super high. one knew it, right? And she, it wasn't until late. Uh, kind of into December that she actually presented with kind of the jaundice and the yellowing, which is one of the other, you know, ways of recognizing it. So it was, it was there under the surface, just no one could see it. Right. And so for me, looking back, I'm like, oh yeah, if we only had that one little box checked on the blood test, we could have found this in September. Right. Uh, before that, I think it would have been hard because she wasn't consistently presenting with anything else that we know was linked to cancer and that wasn't long-term, right? And crazily enough, like my jaundice didn't show up until December 9th when my doctor friend said, come to the ER. Like it just started yeah. to present. So I remember uh, the ophthalmologist is actually a neighbor of ours. She was like starting to say, hey, you're looking a little yellow. Yeah. yeah. That was and, the first. And, and you know what the frustrating thing from a advocacy standpoint is like when you turn yellow, that's usually like the last straw that breaks the camel's back, yeah. right? And, and Matt, to your point, like if we could do the panel, like you're right, just check the box, right? I mean, like, it's not like they have to take any more blood. It's the same blood they use, you know, and I guess this is like for those listening, like if you, you know, if you feel like, you know, something's gone awry, like make sure you get that Billy Rubin, Billy Rubin number checked off um, yep. so that, you know, before you turn yellow, they can see like your, your number is going to be higher than normal, which is like one to your point. Um, and, and, you know, maybe that, you know, gets you in sooner or, you know, you can check that box off and say, okay, then Billy Rubin's normal. Then, you know, it's not, you know, something to do with your, your bile doctor, your pancreas. It's, um, the other one, actually, if you don't mind, it just is energy nine, right. Which is something else that they can test for. I know they don't do it regularly because there's a lot of false positives. Like a lot of things, gastro issues, which can cause an elevated energy 99 in your blood. But it's also a really strong indicator of pancreatic cancer. Yeah. And it's, it's something else that, again, was probably elevated for a while, but we're not testing for it because of the danger around false positives, right? But it's, it's something else that was sitting out there, right? What was my number? It was... 
you were in the 400s and they finally tested it and, and got up to seven almost 800 yeah. and mm-hmm. it's like supposed to be i think below 35 i think 32 i think it's like below 32 or 35 yeah. around that year that was average yeah i i mean i mean there you know the the whole piece of this is like it's so frustrating that we don't have an early marker right like we don't have early detection and you know we we um and there are other groups like that's one thing and i, I think that's the power of this podcast right like you know sharing this because like let me ask both of you this question. Like, did you know about Billy Rubin in 199 before you even went down this journey? I mean, I knew what Billy Rubin was, but not. <laughs> yeah, but you wouldn't have known, like, right? Like, you wouldn't have known, like, the, the C99 to, like, that's the. We wouldn't know. We didn't know where to start. We wouldn't have known where to start, what to look for. And that's, I think, the real importance of this podcast and other, you know, programs that have outreach. Um, there's not enough education on what to look for. Um, and especially if you're not in the typical age range for developing pancreatic cancer. Um, and also what imaging to ask for and how to ask for it. Um, and I think also how to advocate for yourself. Yeah. All that's been on the go, which is, which is hard, right? One of us is a medical background. So we just don't have, kind of the vocabulary and the understanding um we had to learn a lot over the yeah. past year plus but it's a lot yeah it's hard so uh, i'm gonna make a note on that because we're gonna talk about that here in a second but i do have a question for you matt um to stay on you for here for a second well let me let me ask this question given that it was like 2022 into 23 were jules were you able to have Matt there with you for the majority of the appointments. I know you said that first one was kind of weird because you did you guys didn't expect anything to come out of that first one. But I know for a lot of people during, you know, every center was different in terms of guests and, you know, having another person with them the whole time. During COVID, it was only the patient, right? So during this time, were you guys able to have or was Jules able to be to have someone there with her while she was in treatment? And yeah. Matt was there for every single appointment, whether it was Zoom or in person. And he was able to come with me to all my chemo appointments, which made it more palatable. Um, the hard part for me emotionally, not just not about myself, but when I looked at the chemo floor, the majority of patients were by themselves. And I think that's the other part is that it is much more palatable if you have someone who can go with you and just help support you. Yeah, that that I I can say I, I look back, that was one of the things that hit me the most when my dad was going through the journey. Um, again, it was a different time. Um, it was back in like 2009, um, 2010, 2011. And um, it always used to like really like strike me how many people go to chemo by themselves where here I was chauffeuring my dad and then you know again this was a different time because it was pre-covid you know he had like two or three guests a a day when he was in the chemo pod he was retired my mom was there with him but yeah to to realize like how people do this by themselves is just really powerful in in a positive way because i think that does show strength right in the people but it's also very sad yes it is. We, um, because this was still during, you know, COVID times, um, we only were allowed to have one guest, but um, 
we actually had randomly two friends who worked at UCSF. So they would pop down and visit with us as well. Um, I think it was, I think it was kind of strange for the other patients because there's a lot of laughter coming from my side, <laughs> but um, that's honestly how we get through life. We like look for, we've always looked for the positive and the humor in situations. And our friends were amazing. All of them were there. They just all came out of the woodworks to support us in random ways. And just even the little ways make a huge difference. If you can't be there for the chemo, then just a little note or, you know, or just pop by to, to, and talk about what's going through your day. Take us out of you know, the treatment and uh, focusing on our health. It makes a huge difference. So powerful that you just said that. Um, one question that I, I we all ask often, and I'm sure this is probably on our audience's mind here, being your age, family history. Is there a family history of cancer in general? And is there a family history of pancreatic cancer anywhere? So we don't know. I'm an international adoptee. So we don't know, but we did um, testing and there were no genetic um, precursors or markers saying that I was, you know... Um, sorry, my chemo brain. More prone Thank to you. pancreatic cancer. Yeah. So, so she went yeah. through a whole panel, but that was after she was diagnosed, right? It, yeah. It, yeah. It takes a, it usually they, well, UCSF is one of the, the best places on the West Coast. And I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, we know the team well there, Dr. Tempero, who is the executive director there of the Pankers program. I think she's taken a, a step back because she's kind of going on to her career, finishing out her career there, but she's been phenomenal there and they've got a great team there. Um, yeah. But my- she's your oncologist. Yeah. Margaret is phenomenal. I, I yeah. talk to her often. She's one of the she's one of my favorites um, in doing this 14 years. I don't know. Her and I have just clicked and, and she is just phenomenal. I talked to her a couple months back. I know she was taking sabbatical, I think, soon or maybe she did. She did. And um, she's handed me off to a doctor named Evan Walker. And um, mm-hmm. he's just as great. I really enjoy working with her. Yeah, I I think on that note, what you've said of you know the the great experience there, and and this is something we often preach on the on the podcast. And I'm not trying to like belittle other centers, but I think you know these high volume centers, and like you said, your doctor does two whipples a day, um, really really make the difference when it comes to positive patient outcomes, and you know you having a positive experience from all aspects. Um, you know, is is really the difference maker. And, you know, for the audience listening and watching, there's so many groups, you know, there's us, there's Pancan, um, you know, the, the, there's Lust Garden, you know, these groups will all help you get into one of those high volume centers. So someone's living in an area where they don't have access to, or maybe they are living in the San Francisco area and they don't know how to get into UCSFF, UCSF, uh, say that 10 times in a row. Um you know, call one of the groups, they'll help you get in. And there, and if you don't live in those areas, you know, there's ways, there's so many groups that have programs from rides, uh, you know, from, from airplane tickets to, you know, American Cancer Society has a great program where they have lodging at a lot of these major cancer centers, these high volume centers. And there's many of them around the country. Um, so I, I think the one thing I'll say and you reiterated it, Jules, and Matt here is just the, the, the UCSF being that high quality, high volume center is where you want to go. Yeah. What was what we've been told is that if you're going to have to have certain, you know, Whipple, you want a doctor who's done it, um, who does it regularly. So he can almost do it in his sleep. So if anything unexpected yeah. comes up, 
how to manage it. Um, and I think the other part, being in the Bay Area, there's Stanford. We looked at Stanford and we looked at UCSF and we looked at other places around the country. But for our family, we decided UCSF was best. Um, and a large part, you have to make sure that you have rapport with your doctor. So if you don't feel like you connect with your doctor, it's not saying there's something wrong with the doctor. It's just personality, right? And you just want to be heard. So find a doctor who you feel like hears you and sees you as uh, for the person you are. So powerful. I've got a couple of questions here for you guys, um, and then we're going to share for our audience where they can connect with you, Jules. So you mentioned a couple of things here, and, um, you know, it's not, I I know statistically, like people look at the statistics and I, and, you know, I mentioned something before about like, everyone's a survivor. Um, You know, this whole five-year idea to me is like BS, like you're a survivor, like you're a survivor day one. Like even when you're diagnosed, you're still a survivor. I I think the the advocacy space kind of, I get why they do it because they, they're trying to like get on people's emotions. But I think there's a negative piece to that for people going through the journey. And everyone who goes through it, I think, knows the reality of what they're up against. It doesn't need to be reminded about it. So with that being said, I know statistically we look at it like 51-year-olds don't get pancreatic cancer. It's not as common. But I will say this, and maybe because of our podcast and maybe because I think when you're in the space, you see it more often or maybe you're more aware of it. You know, we've interviewed a lot of people in the last year that range between like 35 and 55. That's usually like our sweet spot. So we do see a lot of patients. Again, for us, that's a lot. But I guess statistically, if you look at the numbers, again, it's not the norm. This is a little long-winded, but will make sense here. For people that have children, like you said, you have four kids between, you know, 17 and 11 and, you know, go back a couple of years or a little bit younger. How have you guys done that? You know, going through this cancer diagnosis, which is so grim and so bleak. And, you know, you're you're right. You're not supposed to be battling pancreatic cancer at 51 or 50 years old with four kids, but you did it. So, you know, maybe I, I know that's a very loaded question, but, you know, maybe there's a couple of things like big picture things to to kind of mention here to the audience, because I'm. The point here is I think there's other people listening and watching that are kind of in a very similar situation. I think you have, for us, I can't say for other people, but for us, um, we made a choice. We made a choice of how we are going to go into this mentally and emotionally. And we have, we realized that how we approach my diagnosis yeah. impacts the kids. So we chose to go with hope and with laughter and living in the moment. Um, and focusing on family, like Matt, as soon as I was diagnosed, left his job and um, was home. Um, have, and I know that is not something that everyone can do. And we've been very fortunate to be able to do that. Um, but having him home made it more palatable to the kids. Like there is a healthy parent who could help with the pickups and drop offs and have some kind of give them some kind of normalcy. Um, we, um, we approached it with a lot of humor. And, um, I mean, honestly, we have a really snarky and sometimes dark sense of humor, but, um, if you can make light of it, it makes it less scary in some ways, not saying there weren't tears and there weren't fears on the way, but, um, 
that's making it more playful and something that the kids could joke about, um, I think made it easier for them. Um, and then we did things like we're so, I mean, at moments we're so exhausted, but we made sure that the kids had um, social gatherings and we're, we would host them because it, because as a child, right, you have, you go hang out with your friends at their house and you hang out with them at your house. So we kept that normalcy. So we tried to focus on normalcy, wouldn't you say? I think that's right. Another, I guess, perspective on this. You mentioned, you know, like the numbers just aren't good, right? And and I, I'm a numbers guy. I mean, working in finance and I spent a lot of time early on digging into numbers and looking at cohorts and data. And I found that the more I looked at that, like the more depressed I got, right? And I, mm-hmm. I had to step away from that and say, you know what, I don't, I kind of don't care about what the odds are across the population. Like in my little, you know, medical study, I've got a population of one. And so I'm going to try to find a way to get this one patient as far right in that bell curve distribution, like to the best outcome possible. And that's because that's all I can control, right? I can't control the everything else, but it's like, what can I do? How can I advocate? How can I support her? How can I make sure we get the best medical care, care for our kids? Like, how do I get the best outcome? Where can I put energy and effort in that helps us get there? And with the kids, we made sure to... We, we were told them, you know, right up front, like, we will be honest with you when about how things are going, but we worded it carefully. So, for example, like, if we we were stressed about results of an upcoming test, we wouldn't tell them. But we would tell them, you know, you know we give them the facts, like, when the test came and the results came in, for example. Um, because you don't want your kids to carry extra fear with them when they're already fearful. Um, and... To Matt's point on the numbers, I, as a patient, could not look at the numbers. Um, it just made me, it would just make me break down. It was just too overwhelming. Um, in hindsight, like I had, if we're talking numbers, I had a 5% chance of making it before surgery. And now after surgery, I'm up to 23%, which to a lot of people is scary. But, you know, um, none of us know how long we're going to live. And at the end of the day, what I have is more time, whether it's measured in weeks, months, years, or decades. And that's what's important. I have more time with my family. Man, you just hit a home run. I wish that was the end of the podcast, but I've got a couple more questions left here. Um, Man, that was just a home run, Jules, uh, in that. Like, I'm not BSing you here. I mean, like, so there's a couple things here as we uh, unravel that. And I I have a question here for Matt because, and you you were just so eloquent in what you just said, but were there strategies that you used? I know you did say like, hey, like I, I, you know, numbers guy, got into the numbers and then I realized like, hey, that was negative. And then I got out of it. But it was is there anything else from a caregiver's perspective, like strategies or things that you did to kind of keep you because where this is coming from, and you you often, and you may have heard this, like if you're caring for someone who's critically ill, you yourself have to be as strong as possible. And sometimes we see like those caregivers get sick themselves because they don't take care of themselves or they fall you know, victim or not victim, but they fall to like illnesses themselves because they're so focused in other areas and not necessarily taking care of themselves. So that's why I kind of want to talk a little bit about from from a caregiver's perspective, things that maybe you did or advice that you could give, um, which you just gave a great one, which is don't look at the numbers. Um, (laughs) I know that's really easy to say, I think for a lot of people, but to actually do it's another thing. 
I think probably like a lot of people for the first couple of days or week after diagnosis, like I, I had trouble kind of thinking clearly about things and understanding what to do or what I should do or anything else. Right. We were kind of at a, at a grieving morning phase. Um, but then I just said, you know what, I, as, as, as her husband, I mean, she's in a hospital bed and having procedures, like I have to be the advocate, I'm going to figure out what is our path to health. And so the biggest thing I would tell people is like, the decisions you make up front matter so much. And I, I have to have friends who are doctors, reached out to them, had a lot of great conversations. And they all say kind of the same thing, which you had hit on earlier, which is that, you know, the hospital you're with, the oncologist you have, the surgeon you have can make a real difference in outcomes. Yeah. And we were at a hospital, where we had, I think, a, a good surgeon and a good oncologist, and we were on a path to do treatment with them. And I had to say, wait a minute, time out. What's the best path? And we looked at everything. We looked at hospitals, and Jules said this, like, you know, Stanford and UCSF, looked at places on the East Coast. Like, we looked everywhere and said, and looked at the treatment and said, you know, we're lucky. We're right next to two world-class centers for cancer treatment. So we quickly said, you know what, if we're going to be having to go back and forth and do chemotherapy and there's going to be surgery and follow-ups, we want to be close to them physically. We've got four kids. We can't just grab them all and pack them to the East Coast, right? So we said, okay, that's, that's one. We're going to be local. We're going to pick one of these two. And we just found ways to get in, called in every favor, every person we knew who had any kind of connection, found ways to get, you know, have conversations with the teams there and to pick the one that, you know, made sense for us and was the closest at the end of the day, which is a real thing when you've got four kids. I mean, our, our day is often was, you know, get up, take the kids to school, go do chemo all day and then pick the kids up on the way home. Right. So like that. That's a luxury of being close to your infusion center, right? Yeah. Um, Which really impacts family. I know that yeah. not everyone has that opportunity, but it was a part of our decision making. Like, how do we make this? How do I get through my diag? You know, how do I get through treatment at the top quality care? But also, how can we do this in a way that won't impact the family? Yeah, and and you know, past that, I mean, I I, I will say that you know, caregiver for burnout, it, it's a very real thing. Yeah. And it's something that I, I still very much struggle with. I'll be honest. It's not it's not like I figured it out. Um, I do run a lot. That helps me. Um, that kind of keeps me sane. That's personal space. It's exercise. There's a lot of benefits to get out of that. Um, and I try to spend a lot of time with Jules and the kids. You know, that's grounding. Um, and honestly, I and I found myself in a space where I was trying to be you know keep my career going and be with the family. And I wasn't doing either one that well, right? It just there's just too much. I, I can't be dad and husband and chemo nurse and full-time employee. And so I took leave of absence. I tried to come back. I spent a lot of days in the infusion center with a laptop trying to be productive. And I finally had to make the decision to, to leave my job and my career. I've been at the same firm for 27 years. Um, I'm leaving in two weeks. And finally made the decision that like, I, I have to separate these things because I've got to be really good at being at home and supporting Jules and being with the family. Um, and so I, I would suggest to people like, you got to prioritize. You got to figure out like, what's really important? What do you need to do? How do you get there? And you got to make some tough choices to make sure that you can be, in, you know, at least in my case, like the best caregiver support person I can be. I had to take some things off, the, off my plate. Um, and that's just... It's the only way to get there, I think, for me. Thank you for sharing that. And, and thank you for being honest. So I wrote something down before. I heard Matt say it just now. 
not say it, but come through and say it. And I heard Jules say it earlier. So I'm not an expert, but I've done a lot of these episodes. And there's always this tipping point that I that I've seen. And so there's no scientific data on this. Eventually, maybe I'll write a book one day and I'll I'll have all this log, but there's this point of acceptance that I feel is so powerful for patients and their families. Um, like when they accept the reality, like this is what it is. And then we've got to like attack this thing or come up with a plan. Like they flourish. And I think I've heard from both of you guys uh, in various ways, not that that came out that way, but in just the words that you've used and Jules, you just said something like, Hey, we had kids, so I've got to do chemo and then I got to get back to the kids. So it's this acceptance like, Hey, we've got cancer. I'm not, 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 not to say, not to say that it's bad to, um, like wallow in the cancer, but like, Hey, I've got family. I've got to go take care of my kids. And, you know, this was part of the decision was to be local. It's a great, it's one of the world's best centers. Right. So you're fortunate where you live, but also it's like the acceptance of like, Hey, okay, we've got this thing. Here's our plan. Let's attack it. Let's move forward. And so I wonder if for both of you guys, if that was something that you realize or realized early on, like, hey, like, okay, I don't have time to like figure this out, like accept it, move on, let's go. Have you ever thought about that? Like, have you ever thought that? Like, because it's just very fascinating just being the listener here to hear your story and how you, Jules, how you talked about it, like very... Not notch a lot, but like it was almost like you had accept. I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? But the way you tell your story is so powerful because it's like you had acceptance early on, where sometimes we see patients not have acceptance for months and they struggle a little bit, and then they kind of then they find acceptance and then they're able to flourish. I think the I think I've only accepted it recently, but I would say what got me through it, uh, my. uh, diagnosis and treatment were my kids was realizing I was a parent and that regardless of how terrified Matt and I were, it was even more terrifying for my kids and how we approached it would decide how our kids approached it. Mm -hmm. That's what we threw. Um, And I don't think there's a right wrong way to go through this journey. Everyone's journey is different. I had to like, hunker down and just kind of pull away from people and just to get through it. Um, There are days when I was really happy and do things are great. I'm like, I've got this. And there are days you just break down and cry. Um, Since um, the Whipple, um, you know, there's been like, you'll end up with labs that are abnormal and it's just part of the journey. And there's a lot of fear with that. And we've done this a couple of times and that's where I came to acceptance where I'm like, you know, I can choose to worry about what's to come or I can choose to live right now. And so as a family, I think we chose to focus on what's important, our family. Um, and we get through it. We do everything as a team, as a unit. And that's what we did. Um, but also, um, sorry, my chemo brain is so bad still. <laughs> it's okay. Um, um, what were you saying? <laughs> sorry. 
about acceptance. The acceptance piece of it with the family and for the kids. And even with the labs that have come back like kind of wonky, it's like, hey, whatever, we're just going to roll with this and live in the moment. Um, I think the lesson for us with cancer is that we spend so much time saying, I'm going to do this later, or I'm too busy, or not focusing on what's really important. But at the end of the day, like you're not going to be hugging money. You're not going to be hugging, you know, um, objects. It's your your loved ones. And so we focused on family. We focus on um, making memories, whether it's because um, we don't know what's coming. And so we focus on the positive. The During COVID, like many families, you know, our kids ended up on devices more because it was social. So we focused more on bringing coming back to family. Um, and. I, if there was a positive to cancer, it's that our family became closer and our family figured out what was important as a family culture. Powerful. I've got two last questions for you, and then we're, we'll share where our audience can connect with you guys. Um, and this question's for both of you guys. I'd love to see the next two. Um, and we'll start with Matt, and then we'll go to Jules. So I know we've talked a lot about a lot of things here, but if we wanted to kind of sum up some advice... And I'd love to see it from the caregiver's standpoint, Matt, and then from the patient's standpoint of Jules. Someone listening, watching, you know, their their spouse just got diagnosed, Matt. What did what high level? And it could be in multiple things. I know it's again, these are loaded questions, so there's no right or wrong to it. But what advice would you give them? What are some of the things? Um, and it could be stuff that we mentioned or some stuff that we haven't mentioned yet. Yeah, I mean, I I so it it's interesting. So right when Jules was diagnosed and we were sitting in the hospital and I had to call and tell my boss at work, like, I'm going to be out for a while. I don't, here's what's going on. I'll get back to you when I can. And he was very understanding. The next day I got a call from the president of our company, um, who's actually very well connected. And his, his wife is an oncologist, his daughter's an oncologist who's kind of connected into the, the cancer space. And he basically said, look, take the time you need. And I'm incredibly fortunate to have a, you know, someone at a high level to look after that way. And he said, buckle up because this is going to be probably the hardest thing you ever do in your life. And he was right, you know? And so I, I, I would, I would just encourage people like, don't underestimate the size and magnitude of this and how it's going to kind of take over everything. It's hard to think about, but you got to really just say, you know what, I've got to get ready for this and I've got to be strong, you know, to support my partner, whether it's a parent, your wife, whoever it is, like you got to be strong for them as the caregiver and you've got to kind of get ready for that. And then the second thing, and I kind of alluded to this before, is like just get educated and just try to get the best care because care drives outcome. I'm a big believer in this, stuff, you know, and, and that it's not it's not just having a great surgeon, which we did. Carlos Corvera at UCSF, get a shout out. He's fantastic. We talked about Margaret Tempero and her team is fantastic. We had great nurses. Like we were lucky enough to have the right care here, but if that had been on the East Coast, we would have figured out a way to do it. Like, so you, yeah. you've got to get educated and figure out like, what's my game plan? Because um, as the caregiver, you've got to kind of drive those decisions because your partner's not able to. And so I had to take on more of that load. And even though we try to, you know, most of what we decision we make as parents are, are you know, much more mutual. Like a lot of it was like, she's, she's having surgery. So I'm going to make the call. Right. And just being, having kind of the, the courage and the initiative to take that on as the caregiver and say, I got to make sure we get to the right place. So I would say those, it's a lot I could say, but I think those two things early on were most important. Get ready. This is going to be really hard and 
get educated and kind of make a plan because that's that's really your role early on. Awesome. Jules, anything to add to that? I know from your perspective, it's probably a little bit different. Be prepared for the emotional roller coaster. You will go days feeling, you know, upbeat and positive. And then there are days you just crumble and just, and you sob um, and the fear is overwhelming. Um, find ways to pick yourself up. I think it's really, uh, to tag onto Matt saying, I think it's really easy to get caught up in just the, the medical journey, uh, but find the beauty in the world. Take time out to have a date with your spouse, you know, go out to when you can and you're feeling up to it, like dinner with your kids or a picnic or a walk, something um, that's different than just the appointments and the procedures, because your life can be ruled by just that. Um, and so it's finding that balance um, and finding uh, finding what brings you peace in those moments. For me, it's art, which I lost because I you know, developed neuropathy in my hands. I'm getting it back now. But, um, you know, I think both Matt and I have like, um, we really believe in therapy. So we've had, you know, therapists for years. And so whether you want to do a person, you know, a private therapist or whether you believe in groups, like either or both, like any of those choices are great, but have something, some kind of emotional support outside of your spouse, because you're both under a tremendous amount of weight already. And um, being able to speak freely to someone who's outside the family um, makes a huge difference. And don't be don't be afraid to lean on friends. They want to help. They don't know how to help. And the um, like, our friends not only provided rides and helped with the kids, but also provided meals. And um, they would come visit and be upbeat and positive, and you know, take me out of you know my my cancer illness. Um, and would give Matt a break, like Matt could go for a run or something, and know that I'm okay. Um, and know that everyone's journey is different and how you handle chemo is different and there's no right or wrong. It's you do what you have to do to get through it. So powerful. And I love that you threw in the mental health piece uh, because I know we've talked more and more about that here. And I, I think the best analogy is like, like, like when you, you know, Matt, you mentioned you're a runner. I've, I've hired run coaches in the past uh, as I became a runner, right? So it's the same thing as, you know, to, and, and I think it's like this, and there's a huge stigma, right, with mental health. Let's just put it out there, right? Like, the, the, you know, the, the, the 10,000 elephant, elephant in the room. Like, no one wants to talk about mental health. But like, but like with all these other things, we hire experts in it, right? Whether it's weight loss, whether it's professional, right? Like uh, coaching. I used to do a lot of public speaking coaching, right? Like you'd have all these things in these aspects. But like you can't have a mental health person, right? Like you can't have a coach to help you through those mental challenges, right? And it's not to say that you have like a mental health issue. It's just like getting you through life. Like, you know, like it's just so crazy, the stigma behind it. Um, but it's important though, because I think when you uh, are diagnosed with the thing and cancer and in particular pancreatic cancer, there's a huge mental health aspect to that. And as I said before, from the, the advocacy standpoint, you know, from the patient advocate being that spouse or that loved one, that's a caregiver, like they need to be as mentally and physically strong to be able to, to help that person. And the same, you know, the person wants to be as, and, and oftentimes we ask patients and Jules, it's just so often you could tell I'm rambling here because I love this topic and we're going to do more on it. 
like we often talk about like, hey, what did you take from a physical standpoint? Did you, you know, take supplements? Did you do like what other treatments beyond traditional did you use to like help you physically? But the mental piece, I think, is that that critical. It's that it's that important as the physical stuff that you do, whether it's like we talk a lot about like people still continuing like exercise routine. Naturally, they're not going to a CrossFit gym and smashing out workouts, but you know, some sort of physical activity as you do those chemotherapy treatments. But the mental piece is so much more, I think, important to that because our minds have this amazing ability to to do things in a positive way if we allow them to. But you need help with that, right? You need coaching um, through that. I mean, we just had a person on talking, like, this is so crazy about, um, you know, the physical piece, like uh, a certified personal trainer that is oncology trained, right? To help people. So we should be talking more about, you know, the mental health aspect for people going through that oncology journey. So it's it's so powerful. So I'm so glad that you brought that up. I think is the mental health part you need huge you need to be mentally present and not weighed down by fear all the time which is really easy to do and if you can have find some kind of peace or some kind of some way to say i am prepared i'm ready to attack this um it's all it makes it so much easier it's 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 huge it's absolutely huge and i think people um whether they don't want to talk about it or i think I think part of that is that, uh, right? There's that stigma, but I think people also aren't thinking about it, right? Like they're not, again, like I just, I think people look at nutrition, like, hey, we get calls all the time. What can I eat? Like, how can I exercise? And we should be saying like, hey, what are you doing for your mental health? Because yeah. that's the important piece here, as important as what you're eating and what you're doing physically, probably more so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Last question here, and we're going to start with Matt, and then we're going to go to Jules. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you know, this is the loaded question. There's no right or wrong to it. How do you, and, uh, you guys know, see, they're laughing. They, uh, uh, they're prepared. Um, no right or wrong to this question um, is how do you define the term pancreatic cancer? We'll start with Matt. I actually didn't know this was coming. How do I describe it? Um, define it. Define it. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm not a medical guy, right? So there's a medical description about a tumor growing. It's, it's your it's your definition, how you would define it in your own experience. I think it's like, honestly, so far, I if I'm going to give a two word description, it's family hell. You know, um, I hate to say it, but that's that's what it's been. Um we were on a path in terms of our our family and our life and our dreams and our hopes and where we're going and everything else. And this just knocked everything off the rails. You know, you can go through all the planning you want. And, you know, I mean, we're incredibly fortunate. We found each other. You know, we've been married for almost 20 years now. We've got great kids. I had a good career. We're in a good community. Like, like you think you're doing all the right things and kind of on this path. And this changed everything. Um and in a way that I didn't think anything could in terms of changing our life. And I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that there'll be another side of this. It'll be uh, maybe a family blessing it become at some stage if we get through it and Jules is healthy. And we, we kind of learned from this period and had this together. This is a family. And I'm hoping it becomes that. But I, I, honestly, family health is probably my descriptor here sitting around about 13 months in or actually 15 months in now. Yeah. Powerful. 
I would say positive change. I have to look for the positive or else it's completely overwhelming. Um, and I think for us, it was positive change for the family because, you know, we spend so much time saying, oh, we'll wait till the kids are older. We'll wait until, you know, you're further along in your career. You know, all there's all these reasons. And for us, positive change means, um, to me, focusing more on the family and on relationships. Um, also, if I can make some kind of difference in some way, give some someone else hope, that's positive change, right? Um, if in some small way I can make a difference, whether it's my kids' lives, my family's lives, or someone else's life. Do you know, can I change my answer to her answer? I, I, her, hers is much better. <laughs> no, I, I, I think you did. I think you guys nailed it though like so there's no right or wrong to this matt and, it, and it's very interesting perspective right so you're it, and i could say this from the host standpoint i see both sides and i and they're both super powerful right because from the caregiver perspective yeah it's 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 effing helmet like it's crazy um and, th and that's not negative that's reality um yeah. And then from Jules, you know, from the patient standpoint, you know, that positivity and, and you know, bringing the family together and, and realizing, not that you guys probably didn't realize it before what you had, but like clearly having a diagnosis of a disease like pancreatic cancer, I think just brings that to that forefront. And I think that's part of that acceptance, right? Not that I, I'm not a shrink. I'm, uh, I shouldn't say that term. I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but I think I've seen this disease enough where you know, that I go back to that acceptance is so powerful. And Jules, maybe you just found it, right? Or maybe you had it all along the way. I know you you mentioned something early on about humor and focusing on family and hope and laughter. And, you know, those are traits that I've seen where people who have acceptance use that early on to get through this journey and however it may look or however it may go. But those are powerful traits to get through that. So, Matt, I, I think what you said is like spot on. I mean, like, I'm sure if we brought caregivers on and asked them that question, I bet you that that probably would be in that higher quartile or, you know, in that that in terms of what the response rate would be as, as of, of that family health is, you know, it, it it is. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I want to keep it. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, last thing here for our audience watching, listening, if they want to follow Jules along your journey, I know you mentioned a couple of times, you know, being an artist and how tough it's been. And we hope now you're getting back to it as that neuropathy goes away. Hopefully eventually, I know a lot of people deal with it, you know, through the, through the, the end phase, but then eventually some people still linger, have lingering feelings. A lot of people just kind of goes away. Some of it comes and goes, but hopefully you get back to what you love doing, which is art. Um, so I know you've mentioned it a couple of times, but is that the, the your social media for your artist page? Is that the best place for people to connect with you? Yes. Yes. Yeah. What's that page? At Takini Art. T-U-C-K-I-N-I Art. On, on um, Instagram. Instagram. So let's repeat that. T-U-C-K- I N as Nancy I art. And why Takini? It's a combination of Matt's last name and my maiden name. Oh, okay. All right. All right. I love it here. So there was another gentleman, I'll just mention this. So it's Takini Art. Uh, and it is Jules there. Uh it's Takini underscore art. 
on uh, on Instagram. So um, there was another gentleman. I believe he was a, an artist. I know he was an artist out of the Bay Area. Um, I'll have to look him up, but he was a guest on our podcast probably like four years ago. Um, unfortunately, he's no longer with us. He was older. He was in his mid-60s. Uh, but he was an artist and he would use his art. I think he did, um, I didn't say comic books, but he was like an illustrator. That was like his background. But then when he got diagnosed, he would do like these really wild illustrations um, to, I guess, express like what it was like to go with pancreatic cancer. Really, really fascinating stuff. I'll have to find his page and, and maybe send it to you. I would um, love it. But I believe he, my again, it's so crazy. Like this is another positive. Like we've done this podcast so long that I, I usually have a really good memory. Um, but I, I uh, it's like on the tip of my tongue. And of course, when we stop recording, it'll come to me. Uh, but he, for our audience listening, if they've listened to the podcast since the very beginning, I'll probably remember the gentleman's name. Um, but I believe he was also in the Bay Area or out in California somewhere, maybe Northern California. Matt and Jules, it's been an honor to have you here on the Project Purple Podcast. Thank you for your openness and honesty. And uh, I look forward to uh, following you from afar. And I really appreciate you giving us the opportunity to kind of share your journey. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Tina. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like today's episode, please share this episode and follow the Project Purple Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That is a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Thanks for listening. And until next time, be safe.